You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Say to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and on bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can prey be taken from the mighty, or captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, 
and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no answer? Is my hand too shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. This is the word of God. All right, let's go to work. First things first, I have a financial update for you from the month of September. It's on this slide. There it is. It's good news. We were ahead of budget in September. You guys gave what we needed and a little bit beyond, so thank you for that. And for the year, also good. We're ahead of the game, which is good. I mean, yeah, it's worth celebrating. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, A second fun announcement is that this past week we bought a little church building. You could celebrate that. Don't celebrate too much though, just a little bit, because it's still not a final home for us, all right? still, we can't have Sunday worship there, but the way this came about is, uh, this is essentially going to be a ministry headquarters and an office space for us. We have been leasing office space ever since the beginning of Cormdeo, and our landlord decided they were going to jack up our rent quite a bit. Uh, this next coming year, and so we were like, hey, um, that's probably not going to work for us, and so we sort of started looking for other alternatives, and the Lord made this space available, and it was really inexpensive, and so we jumped on it. Our payment on this will be actually a lot less than we were paying in rent, and so you sort of get those savings when you're living in an apartment that is kind of expensive, and then you move into a house that's less expensive, and you're paying a mortgage instead, so it's all that good stuff on behalf of our church, and so that's good. I'm sure you'll be getting a phone call to come paint a wall or swing a hammer or something in the next two months, all right? So that's good news, and we're excited about uh, God's provision of that. It's down on 36th and Burt Street in the Gold Coast neighborhood, which sounds really exotic, doesn't it? Um, So there you go. Let's look now at the book of Isaiah. Here is my introduction. Back in 2008, the band Coldplay released their fourth studio album entitled Viva La Vida. That album was anchored by a song of the same name, which became that band's most popular song ever, which is significant because they've had a number of popular songs. You've all heard this song, I guarantee. Oh, in fact, there it is now. It's like the sound guy knew that I was going to talk about this. It's got this catchy string part right here. You like that? Okay. We won't play the whole song. Um, Here's the thing. For six years now, I've been trying to figure out what that song is about. Because it's one of those songs that it gets inside your head. The lyrics are kind of intriguing. They're saying something, but you're not quite sure what they're saying. There's a number of hypotheses about what the lyrics are about. In fact, I've spent a a number of free hours on the internet trying to look up hypotheses for what people think this song is saying. I have a few of my own. If you want to have a little brainstorming session afterwards, I'd love to talk about what I think the song is about, what you think the song is about. It's one of those songs that just does that. It, it leaves some space. It intrigues you. And for that reason, it sort of pulls you in. Is there a song like that for you? Maybe a favorite song. Maybe just a song that is interesting in an intriguing sort of way that... Um, it sort of hooks you and pulls you in and makes you wonder, what, what is it talking about? Well, what's the artist saying behind these lyrics and this music? I want to remind you this morning that Isaiah is a prophet, but he's also a poet. And, and so much of his prophetic book is phrased in the form of poetry. And embedded in the text of Isaiah are four servant songs. These are songs that introduce us to this shadowy figure called God's servant. And like any good songwriter, what Isaiah really wants is is he wants to captivate your imagination. He wants these songs to get stuck in your head. He wants you to sort of be be pondering these lyrics in the shower or while you're working out. He, He wants it to be one of those songs that sort of you go, hmm, I wonder what that's talking about. 
But like a good artist, he, he's not revealing everything up front. He's keeping some things back. He's using metaphor and analogy and image to try to capture your imagination. And so this morning we are in the second of these four servant songs. The first one was back in chapter 42. The second one is here in chapter 49, and there'll be two more to come. And from this song this morning, we learn four things about the servant. We learn the identity of the servant, the task of the servant, the influence of the servant, and the need for the servant. So there's your sermon outline. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. You should see the main thing you should walk out of here with is Isaiah wants us to know about the servant. He wants us to understand the servant. Who is the servant? Why is he important? So we're going to see these things. His identity, his task, his influence, and our need for the servant. So let's begin by uncovering what Isaiah says to us in this song about the identity of the servant. Who is this servant? Let's begin in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 1. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there and we'll consider this together. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. So here we have the identity of the servant. Isaiah says right here, you are my servant, Israel. So the servant is Israel, right? Or maybe not. Because remember I said, Isaiah is like a good songwriter. He sort of wants to hook you in with a compelling lyric and then say more later that might make you rethink your initial impression. So look in verse 5. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So, so the role, that, the, the task of the servant is to bring Israel back to the Lord. So if the servant is Israel, how is Israel going to bring Israel back? You a little perplexed? How is it that the servant can be Israel and the task of the servant could be to bring Israel back? This is a little perplexing, isn't it? And so we need some broader perspective to make sense of what Isaiah is doing here. And we get that perspective by reading the whole of Scripture, going all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God, through Moses, is establishing his covenant with the people of Israel. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 28 verses 9 and 10. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called By the name of the Lord. So this is God's establishing of his people. He says, I'm going to establish you as a people holy to me if you keep my commandments and walk in my ways. Okay? So so this is God's initial design. I'm going to call you a people holy to myself. You're going to be my people. But what I expect of you is that you keep my commandments and walk in my ways. And in that way, all the peoples of the earth will see that you're called by the name of the Lord. Remember what we talked about last week. God is zealous for the fame and the glory and the honor of his name. So his design was that he would call this people Israel, that they, in obedience to him, would manifest to the world the glory of his name. If you've been paying attention at all thus far in the book of Isaiah, what you've learned is that Israel has failed. They have not been this kind of holy, set-apart people. They have not walked in His ways and kept His commandments. In fact, that's why they're in exile, because they have failed miserably to do that. And so what God needs is an Israel who can be what Israel was meant to be. 
He needs a servant who can be the true Israel that Israel has failed to be. And so this servant is going to be a substitute, a truer and better Israel. One who can stand in for the people and be what the people have not been. That's the identity of the servant. The servant is the truer and better Israel. Let's consider then the task of the servant, which we've already begun to see here in verse 5. What is this servant to do? Verse 5, now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring, bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this servant is given by God a twofold task. On the one hand, his job is to bring Jacob, Israel, back to God. And on the other hand, his task is to be a light for the nations so that God's salvation might reach to the end of the earth. There are two ways to grow a family, right? You can grow a family by conception. You can grow a family by adoption. God has a people that he often refers to in the Bible as his family, his children. And that began in the Old Testament with God's promise to a man named Abraham. And God's initial covenant was with Abraham and his physical descendants. And so the original way that God's covenant sort of grew was by conception, by descent from Abraham. These were God's covenant people. The problem was they were wayward children. They were prodigals. They had disowned God. They had left the family as it were. They had dishonored the family name. So the task of the servant is to bring back the wayward children, to regather God's children to him in faithfulness, and also to extend the family by adoption, to open the family to new peoples, to, to bring from the ends of the earth others that God would desire to be a part of his family. This is the task that's given to this servant. Bring back the wayward children, gather new children from the ends of the earth. Well, we've seen the identity and task of the servant. Let's look now at the influence of the servant. I have four sub-points here. They all start with C, because I paid good money to learn how to do that. And I have a thesaurus, right? But I want you to just let your mind sink into the description that's given here of how this servant is going to perform his work. So we've seen his identity, we've seen the task that's given to him. Now I want you to pay attention to what is going to be true of this servant's influence. Number one, the servant's influence is counterintuitive. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, Abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So so notice, it says this servant is going to be despised, is going to be abhorred. He's going to come in as a servant, low. And yet kings and princes will end up bowing down in worship to this servant. He wins allegiance by his humility. He's raised high because of his lowliness. His influence is counterintuitive. It's not the way that your average earthly ruler gains power and influence by crushing enemies, by destroying political opponents, by setting up fences around their power to protect and preserve what they have. Rather, this servant's going to come in lowly, humble, despised, abhorred, and therefore be worshipped, loved, and honored. Servant's influence is counterintuitive. Second, notice that the servant's influence is covenantal. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, speaking to the servant, 
In a time of favor, I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. To establish the land and apportion the desolate heritages. This, this word, this theme of covenant is important because it's one of the most central themes in the entire Bible. It's one of the themes that holds the whole Bible together. So throughout the Bible, God makes covenants with people. He enters into solemn relationships bound by oath and obligation. Three of the major covenants God makes in Scripture are with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And in each case, God enters into relationship with these individuals and with their descendants, with the people they represent, by entering into a a promissory oath. A covenant is just a, a promise that establishes a binding commitment. So when God enters into covenants with humans, he he gives his word and he establishes a binding commitment. We as a people entered into a solemn oath and covenant this past Friday. You might not know you did, just like the people of Israel often didn't know that they did. But Corey Werbein was your federal head. He was your Christ figure on Friday, signing his name to a promissory document that said, we promise the bank that we will pay back the money that they gave us to buy this little building that we bought. And so, that establishes an obligation, right? What we said is, if we fail to do that, you can have this building. That's our collateral, right? Which you're glad it wasn't your house, it was that building. You don't care as long as you don't get anything taken away, right? So, so but there's a, there's a promissory oath that was made. There's an obligation that we're entering into. And in some ways, it's a, a type of covenant arrangement. But God, in Scripture, when He enters into a covenant, He does so by giving His word. And of course, we know God's word is the unbreakable word. God's promise is an unbreakable promise. God is not fickle, and uh, He doesn't default on His promises as we sometimes do. Rather, He's sure. But here, it says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. So, So God is saying... His promises are going to be enfleshed in a person. His oath is going to become personal. It's going to take on personal form. He's going to give this servant as his promise, his oath, his covenant, binding him to his people. Servant's influence is covenantal. Third, the servant's influence is comforting. Look at verses 9 and 10. Saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. This is imagery of comfort. So those who are prisoners will be brought out. Those who are in darkness will be given light. Those who are hungry shall be fed. Those who are scorched by wind and sun will be sheltered. This is all picturesque language that's describing a state of being or a state of soul, right? You likely know what it's like to feel spiritually hungry, tired, weary, burned out, beaten down, the servant comes to bring comfort, to bring us into places of rest, of protection, of shelter. His influence is comforting. He brings deliverance and provision. And finally, the servant's influence is compelling. Look at verses 11 through 13. And I will make all my mountains a road, and all my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. What Isaiah is telling you is people are going to flock to this servant. 
His influence is going to be compelling from the east and from the north and from the west. From every direction, people are going to be drawn to this one. And not only that, but creation itself is going to rejoice. The mountains, the heavens, the earth are going to break forth into singing because they welcome the coming of this servant. Doesn't this sound like a servant that you would welcome? One whose influence is counterintuitive, who comes not to establish power by force, but to gain trust through serving. One who comes as a covenant to to personally enflesh all God's promises and goodness. One who comes to comfort and to care for. One who everyone everywhere will be drawn to. Doesn't this sound like the kind of servant you could welcome? We've seen the servant's identity, we've seen the servant's task, we've seen the servant's influence. The final thing Isaiah wants to show us is the need for the servant. The need for the, so, so now that he's introduced you to this servant, he wants to show you, here's why this person is necessary. And so things are going to get a little bit darker now. In fact, verse 14 is one of the most anticlimactic verses in the book of Isaiah. Okay, so let's set up, remember what you just heard, right? Verse 13, the heavens, the earth, and the mountains are singing, rejoicing in the coming of the servant because God has visited his people with compassion and comfort. All of creation singing joyfully. Here's the next verse. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten You're supposed to be a little, feel like some whiplash there, right? Like, I thought we just had all of creation singing, and now God's people are complaining, saying, now I think God forgot us. I don't think he even cares. J. Alec Motyer, who is a British uh, scholar on the book of Isaiah, says this, the contrast between the servant who is Israel and the Zion who used to be Israel is complete. Isaiah's whole focus here is to contrast the servant who is the faithful Israel with Zion, the people of God, who have not been, who are supposed to be but have not been. So he says here's the completeness of the contrast between the servant who is Israel and the Zion who used to be Israel. And let's be honest, as you read what they say, remember Zion is a city, but it's it's a city metaphor for God's people. As you hear what they say, you can hear your voice saying that, can't you? I mean, let's be honest, you've said this at some point in your prayers or in your conversations with others, right? God's given up on me. God's forgotten about me. I know all these promises God makes are true for some people, but they're definitely not true for me. I know some people experience God's grace and blessing, but I'm not. I think he's forgotten me. And so what God does in response to that is to deliver more assurances, more promises. Look at God's wonderful response in verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. So the imagery here is of the destroyers being sent away and then coming back, and their coming back is welcomed, and Zion celebrates their presence. Verse 19 Surely your waste and desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. Those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. 
make room for me to dwell in. The imagery here is, remember, there's so many people flocking to the servant, so many people uh, cascading in to join the people of God that it's getting a little tight up in here. You don't have the elbow room in this room that you once did. People sitting right next to you and stuff. That's what, that's what it's talking about. Hey, how come, come we can't get a little room in here? Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Where did all these children come from? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. The images of all the nations, all the peoples, all the coastlands, all those who don't currently bow the knee to God being welcomed into His people, coming from every nation, every place on the earth. And notice this last call, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So so God makes a promise. He says, I will not forget you. And then he issues an invitation. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Let's be honest. It's the waiting that's the challenge, right? It's not so hard to believe in the abstract that God promises things that are true. What's hard is to believe that in the midst of a season where it doesn't seem like anything is happening. When there's a lot of waiting and no realization. When there's a lot of anticipation, but no fulfillment. Some of you guys feel like you've been waiting for God to do things in your life for a long time. And you're still waiting. And listen, I want you to hear God's promise. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Keep waiting. Keep trusting. Don't give up hope. God will come through. So he's been using this metaphor of a a woman welcoming in all these children of a land growing and being populated by all these people. Now the second vision, the second image that he gives in response to this charge that God has forgotten us is an image of rescue. Look at verse 24. Can prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The, the, the image is strong here, right? And it's not so much an image of God repaying the people who have been evil to you. Rather, what he's saying is their sin, their rebellion against God is self-consuming. They will eat their own flesh. They'll be drunk with their own blood. They will end up consuming themselves because they have no one to deliver them. But I will save you. I will rescue you. The captives of the mighty shall be taken. And in the back of your mind should be Jesus saying to his disciples, no one can free, no one can can conquer the strong man unless he first binds him up. Jesus used this same image to describe his power over Satan and over those oppressed by Satan. I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. So to our charge that God has forsaken us and forgotten us, he says, no, 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 I haven't. Just like a nursing mom can't forget her kids, I haven't forgotten you. Just like the mighty can't, See their captives freed. Don't worry, I'm stronger than the strongest. 
I'm mightier than the mightiest. I'm going to deliver my people. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. But, but then as we turn the corner now to these last three verses, God, God's going to confront us in a little more direct way. So, so remember, the people have said, the Lord has forsaken us, God has forgotten us. And the beginning of God's answer to that charge is just to assure us that that's not true. Nope, I haven't forgotten you, and I haven't forsaken you. Just like a mother doesn't forget her child, I have not and will not forget you. And, and I will release, rescue those who are held captive. I haven't forsaken you. But what God wants to do now is he, he's going to flip the script on us a little bit because any time that we're saying, God has forsaken me, he's forgotten me, let's be honest. That's not just out of a little bit of unbelief. It's also out of a healthy dose of cynicism in our hearts, right? It's not just a sense that God hasn't come through. It's also a sense that God's probably not going to come through because I doubt who God is and I doubt what he wants to do. And so there's stuff in our hearts and in our souls that needs to be confronted. So now God's going to flip the script and he's going to confront that aspect of this complaint. Look at chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? God's answering their charge here. He's saying, okay, so, so let me get this straight. What you're charging me with is I've divorced you. I've sold you off to pay my debts, right? That's what you're saying? Nope, here's the truth. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions your mother was sent away. It's not me who sold you off. It's your sin, your transgression that's caused you to move away from me. I'm not the one who left. You left. Verse 2, why when I came, was there no man? Why when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? So you're saying the problem is, I don't have the power to do what I've said I'm going to do. Is that right? Wrong. When I came, you weren't there. When I called, you didn't answer. When I held out my arm, you didn't reach for help. The problem isn't a lack of initiative on God's part. It's a lack of responsiveness on the part of his people. It's our sins and our iniquities that have made us unresponsive to God's saving initiative. And remember, God's saying this not merely to rebuke us, but because we have to see the reality of our sin and see how different that is from the servant. We have to be convinced and convicted that we need some help. That we need to be rescued. That we actually are rebellious and in need of a Savior. And I don't want to give away Pastor Justin's sermon for next week. But he's about to turn the corner now in chapter 50, verse 4, where the next servant song begins. And notice what he's going to say about the servant. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. See, the contrast is between our hard-heartedness and rebellion and the servant's responsive obedience. Isaiah is showing us here the need for the servant. It's for your iniquities that you were sent away. It's your transgressions that moved you away from God. God hasn't changed. God hasn't forgotten you. God hasn't forsaken you. You have failed to respond, to listen, to hear, to heed, to obey, to return, to express faith and trust. Therefore, you need help. You need a substitute. You need a servant you need one to stand in and be obedient in your place. That's the point Isaiah's making. So Isaiah's given us this picture, this, this really well-written song, exalting, showing us the nature of the servant, the identity, the task, the influence, and the need for the servant. And what Isaiah wants is 
wants this song to get stuck in your head. He wants you to be provoked and intrigued by who this servant is and what he came to do and why it matters for you. And like any good songwriter, he's not giving it all away. He's he's sowing hints. He's capturing your imagination. He's giving you a little piece of the narrative at a time. There are two more servant songs yet to come, one next week and one in three weeks. And as we see the picture that Isaiah is painting, he's moving us to see the cross of Jesus Christ and how Jesus is the truer and better Israel who's come to stand in place of God's people to be what they could not be, what they were not, to be the faithful, obedient servant that stands in our place for us. So how do we respond? What what do we do with this picture that Isaiah has painted for us? What do we do with this song? There are three responses to the servant that, that Isaiah is after, that God is after in this text. Three responses he's trying to provoke in us. The the first response is to embrace the servant. To embrace the servant. To to acknowledge we are Israel. We are the unfaithful people of God. We are the wayward children. We are the ones who are in darkness and desolation because of our sin. We've gotten ourselves here. This is who we are. And we need the servant, the truer and better Israel, to be our substitute, to succeed where we have failed, to obey where we have been disobedient. We need one who can stand in for us and be everything we are not. And so this is the first response, is to embrace the servant. And so I just want to ask you personally and individually, have you embraced your need for salvation? Have you embraced your need to be served by God's servant? And the reality of that, what that means is have you embraced the reality of your sin? Because there's no way I can see that I need salvation unless I first reckon with who I am as a sinner before a holy God. And so part of what Isaiah is doing here is hold up a mirror and say, do you see, it's your iniquities, it's your transgressions, it's your sin, it's your disobedience that's gotten you to this place. Reckon with it. Stop running from it, stop excusing it, stop avoiding it. Realize who you are. Tell the truth about yourself. Embrace your need for the servant. See what's true about you and then turn from looking at you and embrace what God has given in his servant. So have you embraced the servant this morning? Have you come to grips with your sin and your need for someone to stand in your place? That's response number one. And and listen, I'm saying that because here's my concern. My concern is, We are here every week, right? Maybe you're here every week. This is a gathering that happens every week, and and it's not the case that everyone in this room has embraced the servant. It's the case that you're in a room where we sing songs about Jesus, and we honor God, and we pray to God. You're in a room of people who do that, but that doesn't mean that you personally have embraced the servant. And so it's necessary for you to hear the call that Isaiah is making, to see the picture Isaiah is painting, and to ask the question, have you responded? Have you embraced this servant? The second response, after we embrace the servant, these are sort of, sort of sequential. After we embrace the servant, here's the second response, exalt the servant. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's lifting him up. He's saying, do you you see how great this servant is? Do you see how good it is that God has given this servant to stand in on behalf of his people? Do you see how good it is that our hope is not in God's people Israel or God's people Coram Dale, but God's person Jesus? Exalt him. Lift him up. Praise him. Him, be thankful for him, admire him, respect him, submit to him, delight in him, see him for all the goodness of who he is. That's the second response. It's, why, it's what we try to do here as we gather in worship is to just give a chance for us to exalt the servant and say, look, our, our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the one whom God sent to be our substitute. Embrace the servant, exalt the servant, third, emulate 
the servant. This has to come third. It's possible for us to get this out of order. But, but listen, part of our goal and calling is to be like Jesus. Part of the reason Isaiah tells us about the servant is so that we can see, I want to be like that. That's an example for me to follow. That's a path for me to walk in. That's a life I'd like to emulate. And so part of our response in worshipful obedience is to emulate the servant, to say, how can I be like that? Listen, if you don't have an aspiration of the kind of person you want to be, then you have no motive and impetus for change other than someone wants you to change. The only thing that spurs you to be a different kind of person than you are today is some vision of the kind of person you want to be. And Isaiah is painting that vision for you. He's saying, look, the servant came to be the capital S servant, the capital M model, the capital E example, so that you can live like this, so that you can say, that, that's who I ought to be like. That's what God made me to be. That's the best humanity that's ever lived. How can I be as much like that as I possibly can? The commendation you're living for at the end of time is to have the Father look at you and say, well done, good and faithful what? Servant. The word worship and the word serve in the Bible are the same word. In fact, they're used synonymously and interchangeably with each other because God understands for us to worship him means to serve him. The reason the servant is, worship, is worthy of our worship is because he served God perfectly. And therefore, if we would seek to worship him, we serve like the servant. We give our lives in service to God as the servant has. Emulate the servant. Now listen, the church fathers called Isaiah the fifth gospel because its picture that it's painting of Christ is so clear. It's almost like it's a biographical account of his life. When we get to Isaiah 53, you're going to be like, it's like he was watching the crucifixion. And so Isaiah is very much here pointing a huge flashing arrow that points right down the line of redemptive history toward the Lord Jesus. And as we close our time together this morning, I'm going to pray for us a minute, and we're going to take communion, and I want you to just connect the dots. Part of what this chapter is in the Bible to do is to help you see the whole Bible as one story. That it's not Old Testament, oops, that didn't work, New Testament, right? Covenant with Abraham, oh, they messed it up, let's start over with Jesus. But rather to help you see, God has been writing one story throughout history, it's Israel, truer and better Israel. Abraham, true and better Abraham. David, true and better David. People of God, person of God, people of God. It's one story. And so it's important as we come to communion that we see the connections. And so in Isaiah 49, God says to his servant, I will give you as a covenant to the people. And at the last supper with his disciples in Luke 22, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I am that, is what he's saying. I'm the covenant that God said he would make. I'm the person who's come to enflesh all the promises of God for you. And so taking communion is very much an act of worship and faith. What we're saying when we come to take communion is, Jesus is the servant and we need to be served by him. We need his service. We need his obedience on our behalf. He is the truer and better Israel, the one whom Isaiah was speaking about. And in him, we find God's promises to us fulfilled. And so communion every week is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's coming back to the reality that all the promises that God has made find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And all of our hope for being caught up in all these promises lies in our identification with the Lord Jesus. And so as you come to communion this morning, I want you to come in, in, a, in a rejoicing kind of a way, recognizing that's what you're saying. Yep, all these promises for me find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. I'm in on all this because I'm in with him. Because he is mine and I am his. And listen, if that's not where you're at yet, if you haven't yet embraced the servant, then, then that's great. Don't partake of communion. 
because that's what it's intended to signify. And so it doesn't make sense for you to do something that you don't actually embrace and believe. But rather, use this time to reflect, to think, to ponder what God's doing in you. And if this morning is your opportunity to embrace the serve, and if it's time for you, then you do that in prayer as we take communion. Then you come and talk to one of the leaders afterwards. We'd love to know what God's done, get you on the path to baptism, and, and welcome you as a part of God's people in Christ. But as we come to communion, let's celebrate the fact that Jesus is God's covenant. That this bread and the wine are the symbols of his body and blood that unite us and connect us to all these great promises. Let's pray together. God, thank you for raising up your servant. Thanks that our hope is not in our ability to be the people that you call us to be. But rather our hope is in the one who stood in our place and was what we could not be. Our hope is in substitution, not in our obedience. It's in Jesus' obedience. And so thank you that that you knew that we would fail to live up to even our own ideals. And you sent Jesus to serve us. God, we want to be increasingly a people marked by love for the servant. A people who embrace the servant. A people who exalt the servant. And a people who emulate the servant. Help us begin to look more like Jesus as we see all the fullness of what he did for us. Help us find our place in the story that you have written as we understand more fully all the fullness of how it all terminates on Jesus. God, would you make us a people who look more like him because we're deeply hoping in him. Thanks for giving us your servant. And as we come to the communion table now, we receive your promises made to us in him. For your name's sake. Amen.